Good morning, Sanctuary Church. My name is Andrew. I'm the senior pastor here, uh, and it is great to be with you online. I say that um, wishing and hoping I could see all of you in person again soon. As soon as you are comfortable and able, please get back into that rhythm of coming on Sunday mornings. It has been quite a month in this room. Uh, most of you know our Down City and Eastside congregations that meet obviously in different spaces and different times in our regular rhythm. We decided to bring them together for two weeks at the beginning of 2022 for this season of focused prayer and worship and fasting that we do every year. We call that season First Seek. This year, we decided to extend that season a whole month to sort of take what um, we felt like God had shown us on our Vision Sunday of what it meant to uh, mark this next year as church kids was sort of our like pithy phrase uh, to say that we, wanna, we want this season to be marked by a childlike faith, that this is the sort of faith that sees uh, the sorts of things that God wants us to see, to see the kingdom, to walk in step with the Spirit. Uh, and so taking the whole month uh, to pray into that vision, to listen together, and between what's been happening right here in person on Sunday mornings and happening over at our ministry space over on Bassett Street, uh, which you, if you haven't been there to a worship or prayer gathering there, please make it out to those. It's been amazing. God has just confirmed so much and has revealed so much vision, and we've seen breakthrough and some first fruits of things that we've been hoping for, seeing folks just come back to their first love, uh, all sorts of things. I'm not going to let this be a moment to recap all of that. But I share that and that there is uh, something really important about being in the room. Uh, and I know for, for many of us, it's just getting back into the rhythm and in the habit of getting there, of loading the kids up or getting in the car and getting off our couch and being here. It is safe. We're following all the guidelines. If we want to be a church that trusts the science, we can be a church that can regather. Uh, and so these online spaces, uh, especially during this moment where the variant has sort of uh, has spiked. Um, we've been trying our best to make sure uh, as much as possible this church online space reflects a good portion of what's happening in person, but we're just realizing there's only so much we can do with that. And what we'll be doing, uh, especially as more and more uh, things return to normal again, uh, is this, this church online space is going to shift. It's going to become a, a shorter space, a space that's meant to really connect with folks that are um, kind of orbiting our church, um, not uh, staying away for any um, kind of COVID reason, but just uncertain about what it might look like to be a part of a church or what we're like. And so this space will turn much more into a, a sort of outreach and mission place. Uh, and so we'll keep you posted on that as Church Online begins to shift its focus a bit. But today uh, is sort of a, a Vision Sunday part two. And as people uh, begin to come in in a few minutes, we... Um, we are hoping that this Sunday uh, both sort of seals in some way and wraps up some major themes that have come up over the course of First Seek uh, and really launches us into the new year. And so I, I want to begin uh, just with this picture of, of an eclipse. And right at the beginning of the fall, I think I shared a little bit about this analogy in this passage. Uh, and then when we hit the, the sermon that I preached on deconstruction and what it is to walk the path of faith, uh, I brought back up this passage that we're going to look up today. And it keeps coming back because I think we need, uh, we need to pay attention um, to, uh, to these words of Jesus. I'll get into this in just a moment. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you, God, for those that um, have just been faithfully... Uh, faithfully just in, engaging um, with the fam. Those that have uh, continued uh, in this very complicated moment um, have continued to fight to stay connected with friends, 
to stay connected with the worshiping community, um, who have stepped out in collective and individual mission, who've stayed connected with their home churches, their outposts. God, I just, I, I, I'm so grateful to be a part of this family and in this strange moment, the way that you have knit us together in some ways stronger than we've ever been. And so I pray that this simple message today would encourage, would inspire, and would do um, these words, Lord, that you spoke uh, to Peter uh, and the way that they are just kind of been firing me up again and again and stirring my faith and growing my faith. I pray it would do the same for all those who are listening in today. Pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you remember a few years back, there was this epic eclipse, right? A period of time where the sun, wasn't a super long time, but the sun was completely covered. I'd never experienced something like that. Partial eclipses, sure, but where the sun was just blocked out. I saw the sun disappear. And my first thought was imagining living like hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years ago and having a moment like this happen and just how um, absolutely terrified I would be. Oh my gosh, the sun, the source of warmth, the source of light, like what causes our crops to be able to grow, like the center of the universe is gone. What on earth is happening? Now we know thanks to modern astrology, that uh, there's nothing wrong with the sun. The sun's doing quite fine, actually. It's simply that something has gotten in front of it. The sun didn't go anywhere. The sun's going to be back in just a minute. The sun is doing fine. No one turned the light off on the sun. It simply was blocked. Now, Jesus says something about what evil, like incarnate, the Satan, the deceiver, does um, to our faith that relates to this image of an eclipse, what, what the devil does to create doubt. Now, like I said, I, I, we've been talking a lot about this, about the, the spirit of the age, about the doubt and deconstruction and, and so much of the, um, so many of the reasons why I encourage you to go back and look at that message, the path of faith, just how uh, challenging this moment feels to walk in the way of Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And so after a whole month of seeing uh, people encounter Jesus and behold the beauty of God, it seemed appropriate uh, in our church, at least, to turn back to this section. So we read in Luke 22, verses uh, 31. I'm going to go all the way to 34. Jesus says, Simon, Simon. This is Simon Peter, remember. Satan, the deceiver, has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Right, this is like, Peter's go-to. He is always full of zeal, full of energy. He's like, absolutely not. That will never happen. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first off, really quick, this image of sifting. 
Sifting is the necessary, uh, useful process of separating the wheat kernels that become daily bread from the, uh, the husk or the beard, which is then immediately discarded. And so this ancient practice of sifting began by placing the heads of grain in a sieve, and the sieve would be shaken really, really violently to accomplish that separation. And so Jesus here is saying, like, the, ad, the adversary, the Satan, the evil one, would, is going to do something like this to the disciples, specifically to you, Peter. Your faith is going to be, go through a, a, a brutal process of separation. And then Peter responds. Now, this reminded me, Peter, just in general, is somebody I resonate with. He is like all heart. He just believes it immediately and doesn't always like count the cost. I remember this moment. Uh, I, so I played soccer all through high school and um, I love soccer, I still love watching the game. And um, I remember this moment where I, I just started to realize in my burgeoning career that I did not have, um, did not have like the ball handling skills that a lot of my like fellow players had. But I was faster and a lot like more aggressive than a lot of them. Uh, I could keep up with everybody, but uh, when it came to offense, uh, it was just not my strong suit. Didn't have a big leg. I couldn't like center the ball, clear the ball very well. Um, but what I could do is like stick me on their best player and stay with them, keep them from getting the ball. If they got the ball, keep them from scoring. I could chase people down, and I could sort of go on runs from the backfield for like specific plays to take a shot at the goal. So there's this really, really big match, a lot of details in here that are sort of fun, but I will spare you, and that's name of time here online. But there was um, this game where the coach was like, this is, this is going to be a big deal. I need to put you on this guy. And this, this striker is unlike any striker. And again, for those of you new to soccer, this is the like, center forward, the person who is usually got the best uh, accuracy in scoring goals, the fastest, best offensive player on the field, usually. And prepared me for this. And of course, in my zeal, having had a little bit of success being this fullback that you could put on their best guy and I could rough up and take them essentially out of the game, I thought, I got this, I got this. And it was out of the gate. They ran this absolutely perfect play. I hit the ball up over the forwards. The striker comes around the corner. I can't quite keep up. By the time I absolutely do catch him, completely jukes me out and scores this goal within the first. It had to have been like 30 seconds of the game. This is a little bit of like what I imagine, like what was happening then in that moment with Peter. Peter, after hearing this, instead of having this posture of humility, like, wait, what? Like, the devil's going to sift us, Jesus? You're sort of okay with this? We don't really, by the way, get any insight into, like, Jesus' relationship here with understanding evil. It's similar if you're familiar with the book of Job, what's going on there. Uh, we don't really have any, like, divine insight behind there other than Jesus is like, yeah, this is reality. This is what's going to happen. Um, there's a lot of people who have written long, long books on just that one passage. But instead of this posture of humility, right, we don't actually get much insight other than this is going to happen. And you'd think Peter would go, oh my gosh, I'm going to be sifted. I know what a sift is. This is going to possibly cause my faith to fail. He doesn't have a posture of humility. Peter just, just responds to Jesus like a warrior who has not yet been deployed to the front lines of battle, right? Like Andrew the striker going, I got this, I got this, I got this, but never really played anybody of that level. He has this like just bluster and bravado about his bulletproof faith, classic Simon Peter. 
But he had never, he had never been sifted like this, never been shaken. He absolutely did not understand the situation that was happening around him. He was not aware, you could say, of the forces that were pressing in on him, of what was about to happen, of the challenge of having a, a, a true, grounded, rooted, real, embodied faith, and a faith that um, was untested and, 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 and bluster more than maybe anything else. So the next question for me when I go through this passage, doing just a simple Bible study, is what does it then mean, right? We read that Jesus prays that you would not have a failure of faith. And I love this because I think we're given intel into the devil's agenda. This is what evil is after, is for you to have a failure of faith. And that word, fail, is literally where we get the word eclipse. That your faith may not, Jesus prays, I pray that your faith will not be eclipsed. This is how faith fails. I have prayed that nothing will block your view of me, Jesus says, that nothing will eclipse me. And let's be really clear, anyone who um, are already in this message is resonating with this, these words of Jesus, the experience of an eclipsed faith is overwhelming. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just a few things. Like Peter saw people raised from the dead. Peter had this moment of like, for a moment, walking on water. He was walking alongside the Messiah, who we now understand to be God incarnate. And in spite of many of the things he said, of the absolutely brilliant teaching, of the cultural exegesis, of the... Um, of the like rabbinical jujitsu that Jesus would do on people. In spite of all of that, there were conditions that got in between him and Jesus that causes him to doubt, if you know the, uh, the next part of the story, doubt Jesus three times in an incredibly public and shame-filled way. I want to pause here for just a moment and put a little asterisk. Because... Um, I've realized that my heart sometimes when I look at folks who, are, who have allowed things to get in front of their faith and have gone through these seasons of deep doubt or um, um, are sort of like reinterpreting their faith through some very funny lenses that are like really old heresies but are being like repackaged as like cute new age mysticism or something. I get sort of angry at these people. How could you let this stuff eclipse your faith? And then I go, oh, wait a minute, Andrew. Like look at Peter. And so for all those just out there who are leaders, I just want to encourage you with this because I've been convicted of this. Like we need to have a posture of mercy and grace and gentleness towards those whose faith has been eclipsed. Now, I want to get to uh, the obstacles. What are the ways that our faith is being eclipsed right now? And there's a lot of them, and we could talk about a lot of different things. I sat with a few of our pastors just this past week, and we populated an entire whiteboard with things that we sense just are in the air right now, are eclipsing people's faith, are getting in between them and God. Just like that person who's, like, like myself, looking up at this eclipse. Because of the way that I'm positioned, I can't see the sun. The sun's doing just fine. I think one of the biggest obstacles is simply ourselves. Peter's bold faith was this untested, unpracticed one, unhumble one. And you hear Jesus's voice actually throughout the Gospels. If we were to rewind the story, we hear him whispering like beneath all of the stories, especially with Peter, is, do you really trust me? 
do you really trust me? I know you say you do, but do you really trust me? We get these glimpses of this at the end. Like a lot of people will say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I never really knew you. You got the name right. You got the theology right. You were sort of walking in step in some sense, but you didn't really know me. It's almost like Jesus asking Peter throughout his life. And I think he asked this of us, of, is, is this about you or is this about me? Is this about you or is this about me? Now let's go back really quick to the context of this story. In verse 20, so same chapter, just before he drops this, hey, by the way, the devil's going to sift you and I'm going to pray that your faith will not fail. We read um, uh, in verse 20, so they're sitting down at the table. This is towards the end of Jesus' life. Uh, This is the passage that we read often when it comes to communion. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Uh, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine at the table. So Jesus is, is coming towards the end. He's like, hey, by the way, one of you, my disciples, my apprentices, the people that I have been rolling with the most over the last three years is going to betray me. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And of course, they began to question among themselves, which of them might, uh, um, would possibly do this? And then the conversation shifts. So who would possibly do this? None of us would do this. Would you do this? I would not do this. Jesus, are you serious? How could you even say that? I think he got this one wrong. And then in verse 24, the next verse, a dispute then arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And I feel like you get a little insight. We don't know where Peter was in this discussion, but into the disciples' like posture. Jesus is announcing I'm going to die. This whole thing isn't going to quite look like it's going to look. And then they're getting into conversations about who's really the greatest or who could possibly do that. Oh, not me. Both conversations about pride. They're conversations about self. About self. I'm not going to sit here from like a 2,000 year distance and try to judge really who's my main man. The guy most resonates in scripture is Peter. But you got to wonder, is he wrapped up in a sort of lifestyle, self-oriented posture of his faith and walk with Jesus? Or how much has he really put his trust in Jesus? When Jesus then in the next verse says, hey, by the way, you guys are all going to be sifted. I pray that in this moment where you realize how strong or actually weak your faith is, that your faith ultimately wouldn't fail. Peter doesn't have that posture of humility. It just all the alarm bells go off in my heart of going, oh, wait. These guys have, have allowed their self to sort of eclipse God. So the big thing I want to lean into, and I want to dive into just a little bit of cultural analysis, is how do we be careful as we head into this new year, this new year that many of us who are part of the family have vowed to adopt the posture of church kids, of that childlike, open, earnest faith. How do we not eclipse God with ourselves? Robert Mulholland Jr. says this, the temptation to take over God's role in our life is the essence of the false self. The false self is the self that in some way is playing God in its life and in its world. Charles Taylor, uh, who is, uh, I've quoted pretty often, he is somebody who has just written about this secular age that we find ourselves in. And he talks a lot about the self, really the dramatic shift into how you and I, the world that we were born into, the way that we think about self versus community and how different that is from ages past. And he says this, uh, I'm talking about the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century. 
that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. He basically points out what many, many, many people have pointed out. And by the way, he's not a Christian writer at all. That we want in this moment freedom from essentially everything. We want freedom from self, freedom from a larger society, freedom from a previous generation, from religious authority, from political authority. No one has the right to tell me who I am. Right? We want freedom even from our own body. Like nobody, my body doesn't have the right to tell me who I am. And the fascinating thing is that this gives way to a new understanding of freedom. But to be honest, and we've also talked a little bit about this over the last couple of years, is this ends up looking a bit like a sophisticated form of slavery. Modern day freedom ends up looking a little bit more like slavery when, it, um, when we like shine a light on it. Like what is the state of the typical person living? I won't bore you with all of the facts, but they are overwhelming and they scream loud and pretty objectively at this point. The amount of fear and fragility and anxiety and exhaustion that exists in the world is like no other time in human history. And it happens to line up with the removal of God from much of our cultural conversation. The removal of the imminent frame, as one writer's put it. God is gone and you've got to figure this out for yourself. As a follower of Jesus, I think that we can with confidence I say this with no triumphalism. With confidence, we can poke the system. We can poke at this false view of self and freedom because it's actually hurting people. The harm is not in true Orthodox Christian faith. Yes, harm has come from Christians who have actually made a mockery of the Bible and not followed it faithfully and done it in the name of Jesus. But my goodness, the harm that is coming from this cultural moment is just overwhelming above and beyond even the hypocrisy we've seen in the church. We need to be able to humbly and gently say, I don't think you can prosper without God. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, those of you who, who've never heard me preach before, by the way, I, I just love quoting people who aren't necessarily followers of Jesus or I'm not sure where Elizabeth Gilbert is or peripheral to that, just because it can sometimes reinforce the very things we read in the Bible from a perspective that uh, maybe you would view as tainted. Elizabeth Gilbert says this, uh, she wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love, and she has this very famous TED Talk, probably many of you have seen it. She writes, or she says, I got to tell you, I, th I think that was a huge error. Here's what she's getting into. I think that allowing somebody, one mere person, to believe that he or she is like the vessel, you know, like the font and the essence and the source of all divine, all creative, all unknowable, eternal mystery is just a smidge too much responsibility to put on one fragile human psyche. It's like asking somebody to swallow the sun. It just completely warps and distorts egos, and it creates all these unmanageable expectations about performance. And I think the pressure of that has been killing off our artists for the last 500 years. So many of us are living under this just, this godless illusion of the eclipse, this, the self-eclipsing God. And so we need, in light of that, we actually need to reposition the reality of Jesus as Lord. We need to reposition ourselves so we're not staring at the eclipse of like a mirror reflecting back the, the power and authority of self, but of Jesus as Lord. I don't know about you, but I can't even eat healthy for a week. Never mind be my own God. 
You can't run the universe. You can't, like, I don't know. Like, this... I feel like I've used this phrase so many times. I just keep thinking about this line. Like, this isn't like Jesus, like, please, like, just give me a little bit of power to overcome something. Or Jesus, like, take the wheel. It's like, Jesus, take my whole life. This is an opportunity for us to cry out in a moment to be set free from the tyranny of the false self. We need to figure out how to re-articulate and embody the good news. Let me say this again. The good news of self denial, which is so deeply offensive in this cultural moment of actually denying that which is broken. We should be modeling lordship under Jesus without embarrassment. And to do that, we need to recognize who God is and who we are. C.S. Lewis writes, for the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. <laughs> I think if you actually slow down long enough to be honest with yourself, you're not going to think that C.S. Lewis is being hyperbolic. He's like, I look within and it's a freaking nightmare in there. Douglas Copeland, uh, who's writing uh, about Gen Z, uh, basically the generation that killed God, uh, many have written about that. He says, my secret, again, not a Christian writer, he says, my secret is that I need God, that I'm sick and I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem capable of giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. He's simply recognizing the resources aren't there within himself and any resources he has to be able to do these things to some degree actually are directly informed in the West by a Christian understanding of the world. We need to reposition ourselves and others to see the beauty of God. And of course, that's where we'll actually find our truest self. We need to reposition ourselves to see the beauty and majesty of the Lordship of Jesus. And then self-denial is like a gift. That's like a, an, uh, it's the obvious next step. It's the why would you not then deny yourself to fall in line with your abs actual creator, which in part will help you actually, in a funny turnabout, become your true self. St. Augustine, he writes, I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings that are wise and very beautiful, but I have never read in either of them. Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's Augustine saying? I mean, he's saying of all of the beauty and direction, no one's inviting you to come to them as the source of all rest and knowledge and beauty and wisdom. The majesty of God, the security of eternal life, the acceptance of death and sorrow and betrayal, and the one who will redeem all things, this is who we need to behold repositioning ourselves to behold, to gaze on him. Like the psalmist says, I want just one thing. There's only one thing I would ask. This is like the, the, the king crying out. Only one thing is that I would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what we sing when we sing that old song, right? Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day. We need to reposition ourselves to behold the beauty of God 
And there then we will be transformed because you, you become, right, what you actually behold. We read this in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Whatever you behold, you will become. Every time you behold the glory of Jesus, you're transformed into his image. This is powerful. This is actually one of the greatest discipleship verses in scripture because our impulse is naturally to say, like, go be like that. Go do that. Stop doubting. Like, get, Find out the thing that's getting in the way and just tear it down. And that becomes the only method of the way that we think about changing, growing, becoming all that we were created to be. But we don't actually know how to do that. And so we're told here in this passage that it is by beholding him, by seeing his beauty and all that he is, that's what will transform us. It's about looking at him more. Because whatever you give attention to is what will begin to shift you and transform you. Attention leads to adoration. If we gaze at Christ, we in the end will reflect him instead of simply gazing on the self, when we reposition ourselves away from that like moon turned mirror, his image appears in our lives. It's a law of life that we become like the people that we look at, right? People hero worship like someone who, uh, and then begin to, to reflect all the ways that that person is. And if we contemplate Jesus Christ in the end, we will reflect him. Holding is part, um, is simply about encountering God. It's saying we want you here. Uh, big brother in the faith of mine, uh, John, uh, he goes around New York City praying. And uh, we were in this gathering and a bunch of people were asking him about his prayer life. And he prays often, what do you pray? It's this just great moment of people just kind of sitting at this person's feet who has this phenomenal prayer life. And he just goes, honestly, at the end of the day, I'm simply going like, Jesus, like God, we want you here. Holy Spirit, we want you here. Walk down Wall Street, God, right here. We want you here. We want you here. We want you here. I want to behold you here. I want to see what you want to do here. We want to see you. You're invited into this place. What are you doing here? It's just a constant turning of his eyes and beholding the Lord or asking the Lord to come in so that he may gaze upon his face or to see the ways in which the Spirit might be moving in that space. A week or two back, uh, I was talking to somebody uh, who I just deeply respect um, who uh, has become sort of a prophetic voice in some ways in, uh, in my life. And uh, they were sharing an image uh, that had come to them a while back that rang true about our moment and specifically our church. And the image was of somebody um, like getting up, how good we are just in the church at large, getting up and um, holding up picture. And, and she used the image of bread, like holding up a picture of bread and saying, um, we get up there and we try to convince everybody of just how good this bread is and you should really want that bread and let me like unpack and diagnose like everything about this picture of what bread is. But what we really need to do is take people by the hand, walk them directly into the best bakery in town and ask them to take a deep breath. Because when you begin to actually experience and encounter the bread making process, I don't care if you've had a three course meal and you have a wicked gluten allergy, you're gonna wanna take a bite of bread. And it was like this word that got kind of spoken over many of us in our church in this moment, which was simply, we need to, we just need to bake. Stop talking and begin to create moments and experiences where we are just simply inviting God to come in and to move and that we need to turn our attention, our senses, our eyes, our nose to the Lord. It was like 
God just saying, yeah, yeah, church kids, by the way, church kids just bake. Another way we reposition ourselves from I am Lord to Jesus is Lord, from staring at the self to staring at Jesus, is to pay attention, to pay attention to the Spirit. As the scriptures say, to be filled with the Spirit. We have to allow the Spirit to transform and to reshape us into the person that we were created to be, not someone who is at the whim of every passing desire and at the whim of every and all impulses. This whole month, we have come back to, if you've been listening to the teachings, we keep coming back to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Spirit. Right? When we quench, we, we, it is a failure to cooperate with the things that God is doing. It's a failure to cooperate with divine activity. We stop the flow of the Spirit. But in Ephesians 4.30, we're also instructed, and I was reminded of this just the other day, that we're also instructed to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin, when we have wrong ambitions. We grieve with wrong activities. To quench the Spirit is about shutting the power down, to not paying attention to the authority and beauty of God filling us and empowering us. To grieve the Spirit is to, I don't even know I have to explain that one, and make the Holy Spirit grieve. That's about our character. That's about not like being the sort of people that God um, will inhabit and use. It's, it's to not walk in step with God. And when we do this, when we, when we don't do those two things, <laughs> when we are filled and walking in the Spirit, when we become Spirit-filled people, we will not only be able to resist a failure of faith, but will help others see and behold the beauty of God. And lastly, I would just say this, we need to be courageous. There's this great story of, Di- um, uh, I'm going to say his name wrong, um, Dionysus. I should have looked that up before preaching. Um, but I heard the story, it was about Alexander the Great. Uh, and so he, he was somebody who was sort of the original cynic. And he believed that people were you know, too easily distracted um, from like the, uh, the inessentials of life, like a nice house or a new chariot or a well-polished, um, I don't know, set of table manners. And he made it sort of his business to demonstrate by practical example that it was you know, possible to live without all of these things. Um, so he just had this, this prophetic edge, you could say. And so for years, he lived in a barrel to show that elaborate housing was unnecessary. You don't need all of that. And he became famous for this, and Alexander the Great had come to see him Right, this famous cynic philosopher, Alexander the Great, comes to see him, stood at the entrance of the barrel, and to ask if there was anything that he could do to help. Like, dude, you're living in a barrel as he's trying to prove this point of what you really need, of what the central truths in life are. And Alexander the Great turns, or sorry, um, the, the cynic philosopher turns to Alexander the Great and says, yes, get out of my light. This is what we have to say to the shadow of hyper-individualism that would put the self above God. We just need to say, get out of my light. We need the courage to say that when, when secularism, secularism comes to our door and makes promises of self-fulfillment, we have to say, get out of my light. 
This is about breaking the fear of man. John 1, 4-5 says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome it. Will not overcome it. I have a sense that when I'm in a room full of a lot of people, I'm going to preach that moment. <laughs> we must have the courage to break the fear of man. And so we come back to our first passage to close here. Peter, his faith is eclipsed for a moment and he denies Jesus three times. And of course, we have the famous scene. Knowing Jesus is praying for him, he says, I'm praying that your faith will not fail. And then we have the post-resurrection scene where Jesus goes to Peter. And that scene always reminds me of my daughter, Rowan, where when she gets in trouble, I always ask her, hey, will you look at me? Look at me. I'll say, I love you. And then I'll give whatever instruction or correction I need to give and then invite her to whatever I'm inviting her to do. But almost always, um, and it's especially, some of my other daughters will do this sometimes, but it's especially, it, it's, it's Rowan, where I have to gently like, like hold her face and turn it back toward me because she will constantly look away. Some of you know what this thing is, right? It's, it's shame. She's done something wrong. She knows she's done something she's wrong. And when I'm asking her, I look in my face, I love you, darts away. Rowan, I want to tell you something. I want you to look at me. Darts away. In that moment, it's not so much disobedience. It's just the overwhelming shame. And in that moment with Peter, Jesus says three times. Jesus, I like to imagine him repositioning Peter's face and saying, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I don't know if he looked away. But do you, do you love me? Like maybe it was just because he kept looking away. Do you love me? gently bringing him back with his words, maybe even with his hands to Peter. That in his shame turns it back toward him. And then this is what Peter spends most of the rest of his life doing. Right? What does Jesus say at the end of the passage in Luke? He says, I pray your faith would not fail and that you would strengthen your brothers and sisters reposition them. It's like he's telling Peter in that moment, reposition them so that they can see me, so that they can see the sun. And so I just end now with just a few invitations for you, really simply. Like what has gotten between you and God? I just want to invite you to take time to actually think about it. Stop everything else. Write that question down and take it to the Lord today. Go for a walk while the kids are napping, spend some time in your journal. What has gotten in between you and God? Name it. Repent of it. Be done with it. We should have such zeal, such passion to get rid of anything that would eclipse our relationship with God. Be aware of it. It is so often just the sin in our own lives that bogs things down and causes other questions to become bigger than they are. And then for others of you, what might a ministry of repositioning look like in your life? 
since looking at this passage, since hearing my, my buddy John talk about this passage, this that question God just put in my heart and it has just resonated with me so deeply. What Andrew, what sanctuary, what whoever you are watching, what does a ministry in your life look like in helping reposition others to see Jesus, to behold the beauty and majesty and wonder of who Jesus is, that they might put Jesus first, remove the false self and thus become who they were truly created to be and if we are going to be people who walk as church kids, as people full of earnest, childlike faith, which is the only kind of faith that allows us to actually see and experience the goodness of God, we must do this. We must, we must, we must reposition ourselves to be able to see the sun. So my prayer for you is that uh, today, that as we go to the communion table, that as you reflect, I pray on some of these questions, that you would come, um, you'd experience the, the mercy and grace of God repositioning you, helping you see the things that are in the way. Lord, My guess is that most of us want to be able to say with a pure heart what David says, what the psalmist says, but the one thing that I ask, the one thing I want is to dwell with you, to be with you. Like we know in our hearts, that's the most true and most beautiful thing, to be in the presence and to dwell upon perfect generosity and perfect sacrificial love and a perfect ordering of society and of the world. And perfect light and life and joy and celebration and goodness. That's the Holy Spirit. I simply pray that you would move. You'd move in the hearts of friends and family and strangers who happen to be just dialing in today. And that all of these images and passages and themes that we've explored from mid-November to this date would just be like a springboard into 2022 that we would see this as a season of just deep faith and that we would see, Lord, in our day and in our time, your fame and your deeds known throughout our city. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, look forward to seeing uh, you just in a moment uh, on communion. Some of our pastors and leaders will be there to pray for you and uh, look forward to seeing you in person again soon.